let's have a look at the old social media. Terry. Oh, Terry bought a house. Christ, where's he living? Hawaii. Way to go, Terry. Oh my God, Tara had a kid. It's not her first. Three kids. Oh, what a beautiful family. Oh, Duncan got a promotion. Good for you, Duncan. I like that. I thought Duncan was really like a branch manager somewhere. What kind of promotion could he have gotten? It's, he must be swimming in it. Hi, oh, everyone's doing well. Doing well in the old dirty thirties, eh? Ah, oh, well. Hello, my name is Liam Sheen and I recently played 22 Mario games. <laughs> The great thing about doing an episode on Mario is that I neither need to mansplain nor gamersplain who Mario is. Almost everyone alive has had an interaction with Mario and experience with him. But for the purpose of this list I'm going to cut through his status as a Mickey Mouse and talk about his games and rank them. To shine a light on the fact that the very reason why Mario is colossal enough to have a slew of merchandise, a theme park and a CGI movie coming out is because for decades he's been on the forefront of just good game design. Like shockingly good. As such, I will be ranking 22 of Mario's platformers, both of the 2D Kicking Koopa Shells variety and the 3D Exploratory variety. His main games, quote unquote. Now, who am I to say that they're his main games anymore? Just looking at the sales of Mario Kart, it's not a stretch to say that in a lot of households, that's probably the core Mario experience, with all the others branching out from that. But for simplicity, I'm doing the platformers throughout the decades. And even then, I have caveats. I feel like the games eligible for this list are kind of like cobbled together for me, so let me explain before I get started. Yeah, so platformers only. No Mario Kart, no Mario Party, no Mario Tennis, no Mario Dogging. None of the Mario RPGs, and I'm not doing the Mario Makers either, which I feel may be an egregious omitment. I just feel like ranking the pleasures of the Mario Makers, what with their creativity and the soul of them kind of residing in the sharing of content on, and their online presence, it's kind of pointless against the very different experience of playing your average Mario platformer. Sidebar though, the Mario Makers are absolutely great, they're important, they're pillars of Mario's journey, but I ain't doing them. No spin-off starring his amazing friends either, so no Luigi's Mansion, no Super Princess Peach, no Toad's Treasure Tracker. Lest we remember though that Yoshi's Island, which very much feels like a spin-off, and the beginning of Yoshi's very own franchise was originally titled Super Mario World 2 Yoshi's Island. And as such, I will be including it, mainly because I love it and would like to talk about it. But also because of that, the original Wario Land on the Game Boy, which also feels like the start of a spin-off franchise, was originally called Wario Land colon Super Mario Land 3. And because of that, my monkey brain forces me to include that too. So I'm throwing it in. But enough of me explaining. List. Number 22. I believe it's pretty well known that there are two Mario 2s. When it came time to release their follow-up to the usually successful Super Mario Brothers outside of Japan, Nintendo got cold feet, thinking that that game might be too hard for their soft, fleshy western neighbours, so they cobbled together an alternative Mario sequel for the West. More on that later. Kind of for years I operated on the assumption that Mario 2 that the West got was like the lesser one, the less official one, 
but I can now say with confidence that it is easily the better of the two. You see, for the OG Mario 2, which would eventually be released in the West as Super Mario Bros. The Lost Levels, the developers didn't have, like, a flash of inspiration behind its design philosophy beyond, oh wow, our first Mario game's insanely popular, so many people played it, let's show all those people who think they might be good at it that they're actually pond scum by making a sequel that's way harder. And yeah, The Lost Levels is hard, but not in a good way. Not in a Nintendo way, a Mario way. There's no perfectly measured arc of difficulty, where the challenges and mechanics thrown at you build off of themselves, build on themselves, forcing you to use the skills and knowledge you've gained along the way to conquer increasingly difficult challenges, which is pretty much how you should be making a platformer. It's just mean in its design, and tricksy and cheap. The developers wanted to catch you out, almost. Your deaths are like not really fair often, which makes it like mostly infuriating to play. Add to that that the discovery of cheeky little secrets and mainstay throughout the 2D Mario games can often end up being to your detriment. This is a game where you can find a secret warp pipe or whatever, only for it to send you backwards through the game. And once you found it, you're like, you're locked into using it. Like, absolutely forget that. I'm not one to poop on old games and nostalgia. Like, a lot of my favourite games are old, and I love them in no small part due to just nostalgia. But the truth is that a lot of old games from the 80s and 90s were designed in cheap ways either to keep you putting your parents' hard-earned coin after hard-earned coin into an arcade machine, or to pad the runtime in unfair ways, hopefully when the game is being rented, like thus force you to rent it again and spend more money. What, was, what, I, what I ended up being reminded of in a big way on this Mario playthrough that I did was that old Mario games were not like that. Mario was at the forefront of that elite retro video game franchises that were weaving design philosophies in those early days, you know? Building design philosophies. Building the idea of designing games. But here it is. Here's the cheap one. Here's the bad Mario. Mario 2 or Mario The Lost Levels. It's not good. Moving on. <laughs> Number 21. To emphasise how much I did not enjoy The Lost Levels, I have put a mobile game above it. Super Mario Run was a part of Nintendo's foray into the gaming sector of cellular telephones. And by and large, I'm going to come out and say it, it's fine. Mobile games are essentially notifications hooked together by loose mechanics, and this is no different here. But I hadn't played this before doing this list, and I, I braced myself for worse, to be honest. But it's fine. The wonderful, kind of weighty sense of movement that Nintendo have spent literal decades sculpting into Mario is translated well into this. It's just that the whole design philosophy behind it is like that of most mobile games. You know, make it so it sinks into the background of the player's brain, and uh, mainly so it can be played with one hand. I may just be old and cantankerous, but while I can commend Nintendo for landing on that brief, it sort of bums me out that the house that brought us Majora's Mask, and Earthbound, and Super Metroid one day held a meeting where they all sat around and said, we need to translate our beloved franchise into mobile, so let's make as fleeting, as simple, as brain-fuzzing an experience as possible. But I gave this game a college try for the purposes of this list. I wanted to play it casually for a while, so I stuck on my Lenny Riefenstein box set, in the background and booted it up. And yeah, it keeps half your brain occupied, if that's the kind of experience you're looking for. And the simple movements which you can pull off with one thumb feel good enough as you manipulate Mario into bouncing and wall jumping and vaulting over Goombas. The colours and noises it produces along with those manipulations are certainly pleasant, which puts it about on par with a one-armed bandit, in my opinion. And honestly, as soon as this thing started asking me for real life money, I deleted it off my phone, like Chief putting McMurphy out of his misery. Uh, a real game next, please. 
Number 20. When I started playing a bunch of Mario games at the beginning of the year, I did it just for fun until I decided to play all of them and turn it into content, which is which is my way now. It's the way of the world. Uh, on, uh, on the whole, it was like a, a riveting experience, to be honest. I really enjoyed playing them. It became like a nocturnal affair for me, kind of slinking away into the night and playing Mario games. Petty crime in my local area dropped by 100%. And a local influencer put out a tweet saying that the streets at night were feeling less ugly. But I hate to say that the only part of the experience where I felt like I was spinning my wheels and not getting much out of it was when I played Wario Land, Super Mario Land 3. Which is funny because it's the game that needed to be on this list the least, the one I sort of elbowed in. I grew up playing Wario Land games, particularly the third one on my little green Game Boy Color, but I'd never actually played this one. And I may need to turn in my cool Nintendo Boy card after saying this, but I actually haven't played a Wario Land game in well over 20 years, I'm quite old. But from what I remember, they were almost the, the weird punk rock alternative to traditional Mario platformers, if you will. Not afraid to go against the grain and just be silly. Not afraid to star a mascot that looks like a bizarro sex pest. All of Wario's abilities seemed to fuck him up in some way, like he'd catch entirely on fire, or he'd roll down a hill in a snowball, or just straight up turn into a zombie or something. But kind of none of that lovely sounding nonsense is present in this first one, which by and large is perfectly fine, if kind of an unremarkable little platformer. If you were a little kid with a Game Boy who was only given one game a year, you could have done much worse than Wario Land. But every world in it feels like it has one or too many levels. Every level feels just a little bit too long. Like it's not mechanically interesting or fun enough for how long it is. And it, like, it's short as hell, which is kind of my point. It just feels too long and it's quite short. Easily the best part of it though is the ending, where Wario, who's, if you don't know, his main character trait is his unstoppable pursuit of wealth. He manages to acquire a golden statue of Princess Peach. I think he wanted it for the monetary value. I don't think he was going to do anything untoward with it. But suddenly this dinky little 8-bit Mario appears. His only appearance in the whole game. He's flying this little helicopter and he airlifts the statue away. And it actually, actually got a laugh out of me. A little little 8-bit Game Boy game actually made me laugh. Uh, Mario though, unlike Wario, um, I think he was going to fuck that statue. <laughs> Number 19. We're staying on the original Game Boy for the next one, Super Mario Land. Now, it's notable that series creator Shigeru Miyamoto had no part in making this game. He was far too busy on far more important games like Super Mario World on the SNES. So I understand, I, I realize that this thing is confined to the itty bitty little Game Boy, and even to just transfer Mario to handheld is somewhat impressive but you immediately notice that something is off with this one when you start playing it. Go back and play the original Super Mario Brothers these days and you might find Mario a tad slippy and slidey, but play Super Mario Land and you'll appreciate just how right they got Mario's controls in the first try on the NES. You'll notice how he's slippy, yeah, but almost steerable in a weird way. Like there's momentum and his jump is controllable. Like all that is absent in Mario Land on the Game Boy. Mario feels more solid, more cumbersome. He comes to a halt immediately upon stopping. And he just, it just makes him like less easy and less fun to control. I guess it, it hardly matters anyway because this thing is short. It's like really short. I think Mario Land is over in like 20 minutes. So maybe I'm just belly aching. But whatever negatives I have to say about this game is like all made up for with that, just how weird it is as a Mario game. On Game Boy, I, I guess Mario was like free from the confines of anything that they had established with the Mario franchise in terms of setting, in terms of vibe and all that. 
I can just imagine an employee running to his supervisor to say that they're having a tough time differentiating the different levels using the Game Boy's very limited colours, which Dulex have listed as sadness yellow, only for the supervisor to take a long drag of his cigarette and say, <sighs> just draw some Easter Island heads in the background. Kids love Easter Island heads. So like, I guess the theme of this game is that the levels are based off of real world places. Like the first world is like very Egyptian looking and the fourth world is all Asian culture with Mario going up against those jumping Chinese vampire things, which is an absolutely insane thing to be happening in a Mario game. And in that Asian world as well, um, the music even, and the music in this game is fantastic. It yanks some absolutely great little melodies out of like the dinky little Game Boy. But um, even, even the music in that Asian world, World 4, actually begins with an honest to God, do 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 Is that? They can't come for you for that, Liam. It's just, just humming a tune. Maybe it's the way you hummed it, though. I think you should move on. Number 18. Let me stand back for a minute to talk about the new Super Mario Bros. sub-series. As a whole, there's four of them in total, and they exist within the greater Mario series like some kind of benign spirit. When the first one was released on the DS in 2006, it was genuinely exciting. It had been years and years since an honest-to-god new 2D Mario game had come out. Like, if you wanted to get really traditional with it, it had been 16 years since Mario World. You know, that's debatable, but we'll say 16 years to be dramatic. So this thing, it was a huge deal. And it was great. But its overall aesthetic, its vibe, would be transposed directly into three other sequels. And that initial excitement so quickly turned into sameness over the years. Well, every time a 3D Mario would release, it would be this like huge reinvention and basically set the world on fire. New Super Mario Brothers, the sub-series, made the 2D Mario games cookie cutter. They bled into each other with an overall safe direction and like new ideas that were always fine, but never wow. And it wasn't always like this. You know, Mario 3 and Mario World came out two years apart and they are vastly different flavors of Mario. World feels desperate even to not repeat what has come before it. Now, this could be complete conjecture, but I hypothesize that the Nintendo who made 3 and World back in the late 80s, early 90s were used to being on top. The Nintendo during the release of the four new Super Mario Bros. games was a Nintendo that had crawled its way back out of last place. Perhaps they were like watching their back a bit, you know? And the new Super Mario Bros. series was probably decided to kind of act as a safe bit of money. Like, don't rock the boat with them. Be creative in other franchises, but new Super Mario Bros. had to remain an easy cash cow. That's my theory. Which is grand, but it, it makes it hard to get excited about them. And I genuinely like all four games. When I had to intermittently play them for this list, you know, throughout my playthrough of all the 22 games, I found them to be almost like the exact average of what a good Mario game looks like. The exact basic structure. And uh, I quickly decided how I'd rank them against each other, and then struggled quite a lot to decide how to disperse them out into the list proper. What I landed on, though, was that they all deserve to be together, here in a big block, and so here they are. Let's, let's rattle them off. As such, let's change this to... Number 18 to 15. Okay, first. New Super Mario Bros. 2, which is aggravatingly the third one, was the one that was released on the 3DS. And credit where credit's due, they kind of tried to mix up the 2D Mario formula with this one by introducing a whole new central mechanic. 
the collection of coins, a staple in the Mario series, became the centre of which this whole game was built around. You had to grab as many coins as possible in each level, and every new power-up that they designed in this game like, was made to accentuate the you know, crunchiness of accumulating coins. And I don't have a problem with that per se, but it's, it's hard to get excited about, isn't it? Like, and, and in the main game, it feels superfluous as well. You, know, you need to play these other modes to see that act, mechanic actually tested, but like, stand back from it. So what? Yeah, it's mildly exciting that they tried something a bit new, but is the collecting of coins as a mechanic that interesting? Is it something to build a whole game around? I'd say no. No, it's not. Ironically, this was the only Mario game I did not own before doing this list, so I had to spend money to buy the one that has you try to make the most money as possible. There's, there's something there, right? There's half a joke there. Next, Super Mario Bros. U, the one for the Wii U. I actually quite like this one. It's not amazing, but one of my favourite things about it is that the Wii U's higher graphical capability was made to render some really great backgrounds that are probably my favourite depiction of the Mushroom Kingdom in any of the 2D games. My personal favourite is The Last World, which is Peach's Castle that's been turned into this fiery hell zone or whatever. And in each level you can kind of see the castle loom all ominous in the background. But that is not much, is it? When I say it out loud. There's other stuff to like. Uh, like a new power-up being these gross little baby Yoshis, where each colour kind of has a different power can grant Mario, but it's totally underutilised as a mechanic. Honestly, by the time I played this one, I was a bit withered by the whole new Super Mario Bros. games, but I felt like I shouldn't try to hold that against it until I had sudden memories of buying the Wii U back in the day, which is a console I'll stand up for on the whole, but which I deeply regret buying day one. And I remember new Super Mario Bros. U being one of the first big Nintendo games for it and just feeling, no, this isn't it. This isn't enough. By that point, the new Super Mario Bros. formula was really long in the tooth and it was anti-exciting, I'd say. So yeah, I will hold the fact that it's the fourth one against it. It means it had more time to grow into something better and didn't. And the best things it does perhaps were done better already in the previous new Super Mario Bros. game, so I'm going to hold that against it too. Fuck it. Next, I'm going with the OG new Super Mario Bros., the DS one, which began this whole rigmarole. Like I said, it was super exciting at the time, even though it's 3D graphics, though awesome to see on a handheld device in 2006, were a bit harder to love than some lovely sprite work that could have been. Or maybe that's just me, I don't know. And its new power-ups were kind of boring, basically a mushroom that turns you very big and one that turns you very small. This might be the laziest piece of armchair gaming criticism ever, but I always find that turning very big in a game should be cool, but it's always not. And that's exactly all I have to say about that. But look, this is a good platformer and it benefits from being the first of these new Super Mario Bros. games. And I like how it's positioned, this is very small, but I like how it's positioned in the mid-2000s, place it close to the release of Mario Sunshine before it. So Mario Sunshine characters are in this game, like Toadsworth, the old Toad Man, he gives you items and stuff in lieu of just regular Toads, I like that. That's just, that's just me, I like that. But the best thing about this game, Koji Kondo wrote this great soundtrack for this game. Like, it, the main theme is used in all the new Super Mario Bros. games. It's not my favourite Mario soundtrack, but it's a damn good one. What I'm getting at is that they put in a little thing where the music would every now and then go bah! and every time it did the enemies would all stop and tune. In later, in later New Super Mario Bros. games they'd like give it a bit more welly, like some jazz hands. But I'm not being funny when I say that this is my single favourite thing about New Super Mario Bros. It's its single most characterful flourish. That and when you close the DS, Mario says "Bye bye and when it happened to me when I did this replay my heart yearned. For the days of the DS, I just felt such a longing. I like get such a Nintendo touch, I love that. 
And so, yeah, finally, I'll give the king of the new Super Mario Bros. sub-series award to new Super Mario Bros. Wii. The DS one was upgraded onto a bigger screen, and the main thing here is they added multiplayer. Now, in my heart of hearts, I should complain that the level design doesn't suit a multiplayer experience, especially with four players, but that's the point. The anarchy and the chaos, the betrayals. Mario would do multiplayer better, and I'm talking about on this list, you know, and in the main series later, but the multiplayer of new Super Mario Bros. Wii turns it into a party game, almost. One that anyone can play, and the messiness of it is like its biggest draw. I have to say though, I have to bring it up, and it's a bit of a downer, but this was the game responsible for bringing the Koopalings back into the main Mario series. They hadn't been in it since like 1990. I'm just going to say it. I'm going to offer no further analysis, but I hate the Koopalings. And I know I shouldn't. They're OG Mario characters. They're older than Yoshi, but I hate them. I hate how they all have forgettable designs except the girl one and the Beethoven one, and I hate that there's a Beethoven one. I'm not the biggest fan of Bowser Jr., but what an elegant replacement for the Koopalings he is. It should have stayed that way. I hate their, I hate that they're in these games. I hate that they take up spots in Mario Kart these days. But yeah, but that's nothing. It's everything, but it's nothing. But in summation, each of the four new Super Mario Bros. games are good. They're competent platformers. In each one, you can garner clear blueprints on how to design the flow of your average level of a platform game. But I still decided to rank them all quite low and together because it's Mario, essentially. You shouldn't have to just settle with Mario. Like, and also, if you want to talk about platformers from around that era, which starred a Nintendo mascot, Retro Studios' Donkey Kong games completely, completely outshine New Super Mario Bros. Leaving at that, moving on. Number 14. This one's a weird one for me. It's Super Mario 3D Land for the 3DS next, and it's a game I have no major issue with, one I actually think is quite good and was like really fresh at the time when it came out. Yet when I stacked all these Mario games on top of each other, I couldn't quite justify putting it any higher than this. This game's big deal was the merging of the two styles of Mario games, giving us full 3D movement in 3D environments, but placing us in more 2D Mario-esque linear levels with a timer and a flagpole at the end and everything and all that. I'm open to the argument that the two Galaxy games sort of flirted with this merging before, but here it's done in earnest. Of the two styles in its DNA, I'd say that it's it's like a 2D Mario game the most. It, that's, the, that's the side that shines through the most, in my opinion. And after this replay, it actually felt like getting to 3D land was a breath of fresh air. It came out amidst the new Super Mario Bros. games. I hate to dwell on them again. And I can actually use it to blow a hole in my previous argument that Nintendo weren't doing anything interesting with 2D Mario during this era. But it doesn't go far enough. There's something about it. Something holds it back from being something truly special and exciting. A part of that may be simply because it eventually got a straight up sequel that, in my opinion, is kind of better in every way. And so I have it higher up on this list. But at the end of the day, 3D Land is inoffensive. No, it's, it's an inoffensive pleasant time. It's a pleasant wee time, that's what I'll say about it. The best part about it might be the hardware it's on, to be honest. When I go back to play 3DS games, I play them on my spiffy 2DS XL with its sexy big screen and its uh, lack of 3D function. But to play 3D Land, I unearthed my original 3DS and played the whole game in 3D with the 3D dial turned up to the top. Honestly, I hold it up alongside the likes of Zelda Link Between Worlds as the best utilization of the 3DS's 3D functionality. Like, it's nothing major. It's just that a lot of the levels play with a lot of depth, and it's cool in 3D to have Mario float above the screen over a massive chasm that just stretches downwards. It's not essential to the experience, but I think it definitely improves it overall, and against all its other Mario brethren, it's just its best selling point. Number 13. 
I wanted to put this game higher on the list, to put a spotlight on it, but in the face of the sheer quality of the Mario franchise, I have it at a respectable 13. It's Super Mario Bros. 2. Now, now it might be one of the most well-known gaming facts of all time, but in order to release a different Mario 2 in the West, Nintendo gave a facelift to a game they were working on called Yume Kojo Doki Doki Panic, switching the nobody Fuji television mascots that starred in it with Mario and friends. It just so happens that Mario creator Shigeru Miyamoto was working on Doki Doki Panic rather than on the official Super Mario 2, using the project to experiment with, like, Dinez's ability to scroll levels vertically as well as horizontally, which is just so damn quaint by today's standards. So ironically, perhaps, this Mario 2 Changeling game had a higher pedigree working on it than the official sequel, and it is much, much better because of it. Mario 2 is in an odd position where it neither feels anything like its predecessor, nor is it like any other Mario game in general, yet its influences are so important to the franchise's legacy. The official Mario 2's only contribution to Mario was the Poison Mushroom, everybody's 17th favourite Mario power-up, yet here in this quote-unquote faux game, we get the first appearance of bob Shy Guys, Birdo, we get a Luigi who is not just a green Mario, finalising his design as the lankier of the two brothers. We can play as Peach and Toad, as well as an now floatier Luigi, and their playstyles went on to be solidified throughout the rest of the series, even stretching over to influence the likes of Super Smash Bros. At the end of the day though, despite it being weird and different, this is just a plain good game. It offers linear levels with even more exploratory potential to unearth secrets than its predecessor, and you can see ideas here being brought over and honed in the better Mario 3 later on. And that's the thing with Mario 2. I have its back, but it's plain just not as good as the other classic 2D Mario games. Not better than 1, definitely not better than 3 in World. Its difficulty can cross over into frustrating sometimes, and some of its mechanics, such as digging through dirt and trying to avoid enemies falling into the holes you've made. It feels like not as polished as you'd expect from a usual Mario game. Nothing like, you know, the perfect jewel that was Mario 1. But it remains. I like this game a lot. It makes me kind of warm and fuzzy, to be honest. And I'm playing a bunch of Mario games back to back, although I'd never say it's my favourite. Playing Mario 2 was an early highlight in the experience. I did spam save states towards the end, though, because the last quarter of this game can kind of just fuck off. Number 12. Mario Land on the Game Boy was super weird, and then it was followed up by another weird Mario outlier. Super Mario Land 2, six golden coins. Maybe it's not better than 3D Land, maybe it's not better than Mario 2, but I don't care. I put it higher than them. I love this little game. First of all, it might be quaint these days to compliment the graphics of an OG Game Boy game, but it has to be said that the difference in the three years between this and Mario Land 1 is insane. Mario Land truly felt like Mario a bit downgraded to fit into the Game Boy, but Six Golden Coins pops with big, lovely, chunky sprite work, reminiscent of Mario World on the Super Nintendo. So what's weird about this one? Well, what's kind of cool about it is that it's kind of an open world Mario. The full world map is free to explore in the game, and you can choose which order to tackle each of the six worlds in order to collect the titular six golden coins. This does mean that this game kind of lacks a rising curve of difficulty until the very last level at least. I guess since you can choose what order to do the levels in, the developers wanted to make sure you couldn't rush headfirst into more difficult levels first or whatever. So everything remains at a sort of baseline in terms of difficulty, making it one of, if not the easiest, 2D Mario game. The worlds are wild though, they're, they're really creative. One is a giant tree, one is inside a giant fish, one is in space, one is in this gigantic clockwork Mario statue that you totally enter through the dick. I don't know who made this giant Mario statue, but my bet is that it was Mario himself. 
as some sort of shining testament to his own vanity, no doubt constructed by the lower working class. You see, Mario in the Game Boy games hits a bit differently. He strikes me as someone who would force peons to create a colossal idol of himself. You see, the plot of this one is that Mario returns from some adventure to find that his castle has been taken over by Wario, who makes his first ever appearance in the Mario franchise here. But the very suggestion that Mario had a castle in the first place is so very un-Mario. But, canonically, this is the same Game Boy Mario who would eventually steal a gigantic golden statue of Peach. So the existence of a castle here is just foreshadowing to the fact that this version of Mario is some sort of wealth-mad one-percenter who can only find solace nestled in the bricks and mortar of an isolated bastion, and who would prefer to spend time with a statue of someone he could totally bang in real life, but knows that gold feels better against the flesh. Anyway, this game is super cute and weird and cool and I love it. Number 11. Back in 2020, the somewhat slapdash Super Mario 3D collection came out on the Switch, and I used the opportunity to not only play Super Mario Sunshine for the first time in years, but to 100% it, getting all 120 shines. And the experience totally soured me on the game. And I have to emphasize, when I was a kid, I was Sunshine's biggest champion. People may have forgotten in the annals of history, but when Sunshine was released in 2002, there was a vocal crowd who reduced it as nothing more than this weird offshoot from the mighty Mario 64, but I always had its back when I was young. But replaying it in 2020 cast a light on the game's many warts and blemishes that I simply could not overlook. The story goes that this was in fact the third attempted 3D Mario project after 64, with the other two eternally stuck in development hell. And at the time, the GameCube was flailing sales-wise, and Nintendo needed a goddamn Mario game to release for it, even though its genius creators were being precious about the projects that they were working on, so Sunshine, the third idea to follow up 64, was rushed out. And honestly, you can feel it. My honest-to-goodness main takeaway upon replaying Mario Sunshine was that it feels rushed. It lacks that Nintendo polish, it's just marred by these frustrations. But to make this list, I replayed it once again, with the express desire to be in and out of it as quickly as possible. No 100%ing at this time. And I had a way better time. The weird thing is that Mario Sunshine's structure is that you need to collect 7 out of 8 shines from each of its worlds to progress through its main story, with the 8th being optional every time. And I find that in those 8 optional shines laid all of Sunshine's worst parts. An awful bit where you have to roll this big watermelon around, which has terrible physics and it just breaks if you hit it and even tip it off a wall. A time-wasting bit of business where you have to transform fish into platforms by using Yoshi to spray them with juice and when you fall off you have to climb out of this water again and climb up this thing and then feed Yoshi more fruit again and Jesus! But, but I found when I decided to just dip into Sunshine for a little bit, to not worry about getting every single thing in it, not bothering to collect all these blue coins that are in it which the game really doesn't give you a helping hand but it just like leaves you off. It's really annoying, really not fun. I had a much better time just passing through it Fittingly, just spending a short vacation in it, before moving on. Mario Sunshine has a rabidly enthusiastic fanbase within the greater Mario series, and though I can't quite join their mighty throng, playing the game, it's very, very easy to see why it's so beloved. The whole game is set on this tropical island, Isle Delfino. Mario game settings are often mishmashes of ideas and tropes and floating platforms, but here's a Mario game with a thick sense of place. I remember a few years ago I went on a short holiday to this beautiful seaside town in Montenegro. And upon arriving at the town I remember thinking, 
this is very Mario with Sunshine. Now, did I think that because I have a stupid gamer boy brain? Or is it because that Nintendo realised the sun-drenched Isle Delfino so potently that upon visiting a real equivalent in the real-life world, it was very easy to retroactively appreciate that fact? It's such a small thing by today's standards, but I love how real the island feels in like in a geographical sense. How if you're standing at the crest of a hill in the first world, Bianco Hills, you can see the second world, Rico Harbour, off in the distance. Or how the Ferris wheel of Pina Park on a small neighbouring island can be seen from a few shorelines throughout the game. So I get it. I absolutely get it. I get why this game's loved, but I can't let it off the hook for everything. The main gimmick is that Mario has a water pump called Flood strapped to his back, which he can use to shoot water and hover around and such. And, just gonna say it, I'm not, not a huge fan. Not the biggest fan. A lot of hovering around, course correcting your jump slowly. I've heard opinions over the years that platforming in a 3D space is so intrinsically ropey a mechanic, due to like perceiving depth and stuff like that, that the Flood's hovering is a stroke of genius, enabling Mario to be better controlled and... I don't buy it. There's two main elements to creating the fundamentals of a platformer. Creating a character that's fun and easy to control, which Sunshine has in spades, building off of and even improving the controls of Mario 64, and then creating environments, worlds and levels in which facilitate that character's movements. If Mario Sunshine requires me to stop midair to hover with my water pack, cumbersomely course correcting my landings, I do declare that it is a fundamental fault with the game's overall level design, and the main symptom of this game just maybe being taken out of the oven too soon. Is there anything more telling that some of the most celebrated sections of this game are the bonus stage-like bits where Flood is taken from Mario altogether? So yeah, despite it all, this is a hard game to hate, I would say. When I set out to make this list, I planned to kind of make an example of it, to be honest, but in the end I could not put it any lower than this, but couldn't put it any higher either. Like I said, it lacks a certain Nintendo polish. It's no Nintendo disaster like uh, maybe Star Fox Zero, but neither is it Mario 64, or Mario Galaxy, or Mario Odyssey. But I get the love, especially seeing as when it came out, 2002. The Galaxy games would eventually end up lessening the exploratory elements of the 3D Mario game somewhat, meaning that it could be said that Sunshine remained the last bastion of proper 3D Mario until Odyssey came out in 2017. And a few years after Sunshine, the new Super Mario Bros. era would begin, reducing the Mario vibes to a singular palette, where Mario Sunshine would stand tall with its exotic flavour and its weirdly lived-in tropical Mario world. So much bouncing around and annoying tightrope so. In the level design. And this game loves to have you scale these massive structures, and then if you fall, you have to climb all over again, which is fine, I don't mind that, it's a staple of the genre. But then it cheapens everything by having these wispy gust enemies who appear and circle Mario and then knock him off and like you fall off and it's just so cheap and you wonder how can this be anyone's favourite Mario game but then you're hanging out in Delfino Plaza and the artificial Gamecube sunlight hits the shine gate just right and you decide to go to that vendor who can sell Mario sunglasses and you buy them just because and you think huh this game's kind of cool actually not getting in the top 10 though absolutely not <laughs> number 10 I'm going to begin the top 10 with the OG Super Mario Brothers for the NES, the one that started it all. Actually, I must say at this point that I could have included the original original just Mario Brothers, or could have gone back to Donkey Kong even, since that's where Mario's first appearance was, under a different name, but you know. The main reason I chose the NES Super Mario Brothers as the earliest title on this list is simply because this is where the real quality begins, and I'm not talking about the Mario series, I'm talking about gaming as a medium, as a whole. 
as far as I'm concerned, like there was gaming before 1985 Super Mario Brothers and there was gaming after. Its influence cannot be understated, but more importantly, neither can its sheer quality. There has been so much written about World 1-1 of Super Mario Brothers, how it should be studied as a simple demonstration of how game design works. And honestly, yeah, it's kind of true. It's all there. The way a new player can enjoy playing it and learn how to play it all at the same time, seamlessly. I cannot overstate how much games were not like this back in 1985. And yeah, it's aged a bit, but honestly, mainly in comparison to its own sequels, especially 3 and World. In comparison to other platform games, it easily still holds its own. In comparison to other video games of its era, it might be right at the top, to be honest. Like, I dig, uh, let's say, I dig the original Final Fantasy. It's cool. But playing it these days feels academic, like studying a history book. But there are certain games from that era, some some of the early entries in franchises that are still going to this day, that were early examples of thoughtful game design. I'm talking Legend of Zelda, Castlevania, and more so than maybe all the others, Super Mario Brothers. The fundamentals of the magic of the Mario series are all there. There's weight to the plumber's movement, malleability. The levels are quick bursts of platformy goodness, but there are secrets to be discovered, which in the pre-internet days took up almost mythical statuses. And here's the point where you maybe decide, if I'm just up my own ass about this whole Mario thing, you might have decided that already. But the mushroom. It's just the most perfect video game power-up ever made. It makes Mario bigger, thus granting him another hit of damage. But a bigger Mario can also smash blocks with his head that a smaller Mario can't, thus allowing him to discover secrets or shortcuts or alternate routes easier than if he was small. So the player is rewarded for playing good. If they can avoid taking a hit and keeping Mario big, their ability to experience more of what this game has to offer is expanded. We might take this for granted now, but in 1985 this was genius game design and I stand by that. Anything that I can compliment about a Mario game comes from here, and the fact that the game is still super fun to play to this day is a godsend. It's the first example of Nintendo being so far ahead of the pack in terms of making video games, and like not only that, it's the first example of Nintendo being so far ahead of the pack in terms of making video games via the Mario series. The first time Mario would be the leader of the gaming pack, with everyone else just following in his wake. Number 9. Super Mario 3D World is the second fusion of the 2D and 3D Mario formulas, this time appearing on the Wii U. I remember being disappointed by its announcement since at the time I was jonesing for a proper 3D Mario game. I was disappointed right up until the moment where I played it. Because this game is joy incarnate. The main thing here is that the game is multiplayer. It brings back the playable foursome and each of their individual playstyles from Super Mario Bros. 2 which I love. And the multiplayer threads the line almost. It can be anarchic which is fantastically fun, but team up with other players who take it seriously, you know, which might not be the most fun thing for you, but team up with other players who take it seriously, and this is an incredibly good co-op game. In fact, we did an episode about co-op games on this very podcast, and I'm shocked that I forgot to bring this one up. I have fond memories of playing with my uh, older brother, like we almost 100%ed it, like good times. After playing so many Mario games in a row too, I was surprised to be reminded by how it kind of shakes it up with some level varieties as well. The classic tropes, they're all still there, they're all still present. But now and then you're treated to something like new to the Mario palette. Opulent, kind of light-covered amusement parks or, or levels that have you jumping between a pair of Bowser-themed trains. It's good. A lot of new Mario games throw in new power-ups too, and I don't have a problem with most of them. Like the new Super Mario Brothers series gave us a penguin suit, a flying squirrel, a hat with a propeller on it. But the catsuit power-up from 3D World must be the greatest new Mario power-up in years. I've heard arguments that it's almost too good that the skill set it offers Mario almost breaks the game. But I declare, 
I do declare that the Mario series has a storied history of offering you power-ups that almost completely break the game, or at the very least let you circumvent chunks of it if you know how to use them properly, and the cat suit is like simply so fun letting you scamper up walls and perform aerial dive attacks, and the benefit of having it feels so large that you're delighted when you find it, and you're like, you curse yourself whenever you get hit and lose it. Another new power-up at the cherries are great too, they clone and multiply your characters and the levels kind of challenge you to get to certain points trying to cumbersomely control three or four characters at once uh the implications of one dying while the others go on is, is something i dare not dwell on but you know that's beside the point point. 3d world just feels like a breathless slew of ideas the levels just continue being fresh and creative for its entire runtime all backed up by one of the best most jazziest mario scores ever the only way i'd say that this game could be improved is that if they re-released it and bundled it with a whole other separate game but obviously, if that ever happened, I'd have to give that game a separate place in this list. And oh my god! <laughs> Number 8. Bowser's Fury came packaged with the re-release of 3D World on the Switch, and I declare it both shockingly good and unfairly forgotten. I guess I understand why it's forgotten this thing just didn't have its own release, it was a side show to another game, but I'm not putting it at the juicy number 8 spot as some kind of awareness campaign. It's genuinely, genuinely one of the best Mario games ever made. It's, I think it's a secret. While its sister game 3D World is all about linear levels and immediacy and anarchy, Bowser's Fury is actually the latest in the line of 3D Mario games. Ever since Odyssey came out in 2017 we've been kind of waiting for the next big 3D Mario game and there it is, it came out in 2021, albeit it's, it's bite-sized, it's small, it's not a full-length game. A lot of classic franchises have made the leap into open-world tomfoolery. To the dismay of some, to the joy of others, as Zelda, Final Fantasy, Pokemon, Metal Gear, they all did it. And here is Mario doing it. Bowser's Fury, yeah, it's set in one seamless open world that has hosted some very floaty Mario-type levels. You get around on the semi-recurring Mario character, the Loch Ness Monster slash Goober, Plessy. And yet, the very idea of an open world Mario game sounds sacrilegious to say, but in execution it's handled very well. It, it feels very much divided up into disparate levels still. The end result actually feels very natural. In, in 1996, Mario had to jump through portraits in Peach's castle in order to be warped to a variety of different like levels and worlds. Well, now the times and the hardware have moved on and there's no need for portraits anymore. All the colourful worlds can sit collected in a single, explorable, open world. I'm not the first to point this out, naturally, but, but Bowser's Fury very much feels like a test run, a sneaky little snapshot of what the next true 3D Mario could look like. But think bigger for next time, obviously. Outside of that, the central gimmick of Bowser's Fury and his open world is that Bowser has transformed into this rampaging kaiju, and at all times, no matter where you are, you can see him slumbering against a vista. Every now and then he'll wake up and chaos will ensue throughout the world, and this is a bit of Bowser's Fury that I'm kind of in two minds about. It's a neat concept, I guess. It keeps you on your toes. He can wake up while you're in the middle of some very precision platforming, and suddenly your whole situation has just gotten a lot hairier. But in execution, it kind of irritated me more than entertained me. It often felt like it was getting in the way, if that makes sense. I like the idea of an unstoppable force impeding your progress in, say, a Resident Evil 2 remake, which is a survival horror game, and an unstoppable force impeding you is very much on brand for a survival horror game, but in Bowser's Fury I can't help but dream of a version of this game where the kaiju mechanic, it, you know, is just not there, and, and it doesn't impede on the chill vibes and the breezy exploration, and, you know, the truly excellent level design, because... Another one of this game's big secrets is that it has some of the best level design ever in any Mario game. Also, you have to intermittently transform into a gigantic cat version of Mario to fight Kaiju Bowser, and I will repeat with even less elaboration, turning big in games should be cool, 
but it never is. But I hate to leave it on a negative note, so I offer Bowser's Fury a special prize within this list. Most underrated Mario game. And honestly, I can say without hyperbole that it's easily one of the best things Nintendo has put out in recent years. I'll put that out there now. Number 7. The weird thing about the dawn of the 3D graphics era, and I'm talking about N64, PS1 times here, is that because developers were getting used to this shocking new 3D magic, games are sort of fuck ugly from back then. Like, you'll never catch me saying there isn't charm to that era. Half of my developmental growth tripped up and never moved on from that era. But it's true. Graphics do be rough from back then. Mario 64 came out in 1996, and I'm not doing Mario 64 yet, hold your horses. But Mario 64 came out in 1996, and graphically, it's on the rough side these days. But a year earlier, in 1995, Super Mario World 2 Yoshi's Island came out under Super Nintendo. At the end of that console's life. At the end of the era of 16-bit graphics. And that game is absolutely gorgeous to this day. Mario 64 kind of looks like a tech demo, if I'm allowed to say that. Like the developers were dreaming of so much more, but gosh, they're giving their darndest with the graphics they have at hand. But Yoshi's Island looks like the exact art style, the exact essence of what the developers were going for. It looks like it was captured perfectly on a 16-bit cartridge. And I'm going to say it, it hasn't aged a day. It's my pick for the single best-looking game of the 16-bit era. Yoshi's Island is made to look like it's entirely drawn in crayon, and that statement is the perfect avenue into its vibe. You don't play as Mario in this one, because he is a baby. You play as a collective of multicoloured Yoshis who pass him from level to level. All Mario games could be described as kiddie. I'd go for suitable for all ages, but whatever. But Yoshi's Island in particular skews on the cutesy side. This game would spin off into an entire sub-franchise for Yoshi, and that franchise would often be used for when Nintendo were truly aiming their titles toward little kids. But that aspect does not ring true here. Simply put, this is like, you know, this is one of the greatest 2D platformers ever made. It feels different from your usual Marios in a lot of obvious ways, but in the soul of the gameplay too. 2D Mario games like you barreling forward, they have you on a timer. Levels are a quick affair, kind of bite-sized bits of gaming serotonin. In Yoshi's Island though, the levels breathe more. They can be long, they can be winding. There are a lot of beaten paths and secrets to discover and a slew of collectibles to gather in each level. I would almost say that there's a tiny bit too many things to collect in this game, but if you're the type of person who's like up to that task, at least the collection is facilitated by great level design, crunchy mechanics, as you eat enemies with Yoshi's tongue and turn them unwillingly into eggs to be used as ammunition against their brethren. Actually, if this game wasn't drawn in crayon, it would be an absolute nightmare. The soundtrack for this game absolutely slaps as well. You might know some of it just by hanging out on the internet over the last few years. I know at least... At least a couple of years ago, like, this piece was used in a bunch of memes and TikToks or whatever. Some of the tracks in this game are what I like to call all-lifers, potently catchy earworms that will reside in your grey matter for the rest of your life after you hear them. You'll be doing the shopping and suddenly, bam, there's one. You'll be filling out a census and then, boom, good Yoshi music in your head. You'll be in court listening to the judge announce that you've lost custody rights to your two beautiful boys and then... Oh no, judge. Not my boys. Not my beautiful boys. Craig, Fergus, Daddy loves you. 
Daddy loves you, not my beautiful guys. When I replayed this game for this list, I discovered something that I'd never found before. I can't even remember where it is in the game, but I found a secret area where there was one of these uh, blocks you can hit that gives you kind of these written tutorials on like certain mechanics. They're all through the game. I hit it and it was this message from the developers saying something like they hoped I was enjoying the game because they put all their hearts and soul into it. And it was weird that I discovered it when I did because I was feeling it. It's one of those games you can feel it. You can feel the care and the craft put into it. You can feel the full efforts of a development team just firing on all cylinders. Like, I love this game. And the fact that I have it at 7 speaks only of the pedigree of the Mario franchise. Number 6. I properly stressed out about which game to put higher on this list. And that might seem like a weird thing to stress about, but here we are. Not to spoil the shape of this list going forward, but we now come to the end of our 2D Mario journey. Super Mario Bros. 3 vs Super Mario World. Both amazing 2D platformers, both amazing Mario games. But which to put first? I have things I like to compare between the two, so fuck it, let's do these together. <laughs> Number 6 and 5. Mario 3 is simply a perfect sequel. Mario 2 was the outlier, a good outlier, a charming one, but here is the truest sequel to the original Super Mario Bros. And it's perfect. Everything that worked about the original game, the tight platforming controls, fast levels with quickly ramping challenges, and a whole lot of secrets between the cracks of those levels, each of these things were considered, analyzed, and made better in the sequel. One of the main new things, perhaps, is Mario's first ever world map, a dinky map where you navigate Mario through the encroaching levels, but also it splits off into side directions for fun minigames to play, or enemies can block your path, forcing you into battle with them. Suddenly, the game just feels more like a world to inhabit, to explore. And exploration is better within the levels themselves too, thanks in no small part to the Tanuki tail that Mario can now attain, which grants him the power of flight, as long as he can get a good running start at it. I love mechanics in games that change the way you perceive a game's space, in, like, in a fundamental way, and you have a quintessential one here in Mario 3. The ability to fly changes everything once you have it. It leads to secrets, but it also can help you just spam whole chunks of levels if you can pull it off. So you find yourself scanning the level geometry for flat spaces for Mario to sprint off of into flight. It's so simple, yet so good. And speaking of spamming levels, the developers of Mario 3 absolutely want you to. The ability to use the mechanics provided to essentially break the game is a feature, not a bug. It's the great equalizer in terms of skill level and it's achieved through the items. Nintendo just went absolutely crazy with coming up with new power-ups to imbue Mario with in this game, ranging from your basics, like your fire flowers, all the way up to the likes of turning Mario into a frog or putting him in a big shoe. And you can stockpile items on a little menu on the map screen and power Mario up with them whenever you want before you enter a level or whatever. So for example, the frog suit is kind of terrible unless Mario uses it to swim, so is the next level going to be a watery level? Well, now, thanks to the nifty inclusion of a map screen, you can tell if it's going to be with your own human eyes. So why not toss the frog suit on before you enter? That's simple stuff design-wise. Simple, but, but very effective. And since some items, most notably like the magic wing, which allows Mario to fly indefinitely without needing a running start, it, that can be used to circumvent entire levels if you use it right. 
Like, why not save that for some levels you know are going to be tough? And good thing you know that each world ends in, like, nefarious airship levels with scrolling screens filled with bullets and cannons and their nightmares. So why not save some magic wings for those and just spam them? Which is what I did in my most recent playthrough. I skipped more than half of those levels by just flying over them. The ability to use items to break Mario 3, or at the very least optimize it in your favour, is core to the experience. Most games weren't long back in those days, Mario 3 certainly isn't. It's expected that you will replay it a bunch. And here's a game that rewards foreknowledge, it rewards experimentation. Use items to skip levels, to break them, or to just make them easier. It's central to progressing through Mario 3, to mastering it, uh, to experiencing it in new ways. Mario World then, or Mario 4 for all intents and purposes, did away with the idea of stockpiling items. Instead you can hold on to one backup item to use if you find yourself after taking a hit or if you're in need. Is this a better system than 3? Well, the way that the new Super Mario Bros. games would eventually vacillate between using each of those two systems from game to game, I'm going to assume that Nintendo isn't even sure which is better. But for me at least, it isn't. Mario 3's items are a form of expression, which is why I have to say that Mario World then trumps it in other ways. Like, like all oh, the excitement of new hardware. Mario World was Mario's first jump from 8-bit to 16-bit, and although maybe he wasn't as blisteringly fast or as cool as a certain 16-bit hedgehog, it's hard to understate what a leap world was for the Mario series, realising our porty plumber and his candy-coloured world in beautiful, chunky sprite work. The levels in this game are more mechanically creative than ever before, the world map is back and it's better, more chock full of secrets. Uh, the greatest idea Mario World has in terms of progression are these coloured switches. The first one is pretty much offered freely to you towards the beginning of the game, but the others are trickier to find later on. And I love them as a mechanic. Each coloured switch makes solid these invisible blocks throughout every level in the game. Once solid, they can now act as platforms that weren't there before, or bridges, or barriers protecting you from enemies, or whatever. They can make levels easier, or they can let you reach secrets that you otherwise couldn't. Essentially, to perhaps put it in a way that doesn't suit the rudimentary 2D graphics of this game, activating switches changes the geography of the game's world. Seeking them out and pressing them rewards you tenfold in numerous ways, just as I said. And am I crazy, or does that give the game a bit of a kind of a Metroidvania edge to it? For example, having two switches activated rather than all three offers the player less access to the game. Almost in the same way of not having a certain power-up to reach a certain area in a much more open, Metroidvania-type game. It gives Mario World, which is still at its core just a string of excellently designed platform levels, extra dimension, extra heft, definitely extra replayability. The music is wonderful also in this game. Koji Kondo created a central theme for Mario World, this zippy, feel-good earworm, and pretty much remixed its melody for every level. This is a trick a lot of Mario games pull, but this is my favourite execution of it. It's, it's fun to see the happy melody turned into something genuinely sort of spooky for the ghost houses. And then for the end of each world castle levels, Tondo managed to morph it into this sinister yet forlorn piece. It adds this unnecessary amount of weight and melancholy to a dinky little Mario level, but like, there it is. Like it's, it's probably my favourite piece of Mario music ever written, I love it. And also, uh, this game marks the first appearance of Yoshi in the entire franchise, and oof, Yoshi is my favourite Mario character, that's all I have to say about that. Mario World then is perhaps mechanically, definitely graphically, superior to Mario 3. It's the perfect sequel in the same way that 3 is to 1, but I still prefer 3. It remains the bigger leap, the more exciting evolution, but both games are stunners. Everything I'm going to wax lyrical about at the tail end of this list in regards to the 3D Mario games and their spirit of wanderlust 
has their genesis in these games. It's fun to look back at them now, but in the, in the late 80s, early 90s, they must have been absolutely wonderful. Containment units for just mystery and pure joy. But for the purpose of this list, it's number six, Mario World, number five, Mario 3. Mario 3 really blew my socks off on this replay that I did, so much so that I can easily declare it as both the best game on the NES and the best game of the 1980s. If you were to tell me you preferred World, I, I wouldn't argue. I'd just be happy that someone was talking to me about Mario, to be honest. But if you thought that these two 2D classics were better than the four 3D classics I have rounding out this list, I would politely disagree and then hurl a chair at you. Number four. And the game I'm choosing for number four is Super Mario 64. Anyone listening to this who knows me may think that putting Mario 64 anywhere lower than one is a concerning indication that I may be recording this podcast in a, a carbon monoxide leak or something. But let's talk about Mario 64. It was amazing in 1996, but is it amazing now? First things first, I cannot emphasize enough what a big deal this game was when it came out. Getting a handle on this new dimension of game design should have been a slower, more laborious process. And honestly, for a lot of devs, it was. I'm trying to think of what other games of that era were so concerned with how a video game character might be controlled in a 3D environment at a fundamental level. Now, lots of other games made lots of revolutions in that time, with graphics, with cinematics, with storytelling, with bringing gaming into an ostensibly more mature part of its life. But what games cared as much as 64 did about the connection between the player and the 3D character, and then the connection between that 3D character and the 3D environment? Off the top of my head, I'm thinking Tomb Raider. And now I'm all about Tomb Raider, big fan, but that thing aged like a year after it came out. Mario 64 remains timeless, and more than that, it was just so far beyond what the good folks who made Tomb Raider came up with. Mario 64 soared before it even crawled or walked. It's insane how right this game got it. How thoughtful, how considered Nintendo's approach was to realizing the realities of controlling a character in a 3D space. It was so far ahead of its time, and to simplify it, it was achieved by Nintendo applying that instinctual understanding that they had been applying to Mario's movement since all the way back in 1985. The idea that controlling a character should be fun even before you have sandboxes to play around in. Mario was given a new moveset that complemented uh, 3D scampering around, get enough space in front of him to be able to achieve three jumps in a row while running, and each jump is bigger than the last, culminating in a huge leap up and forward change Mario's direction suddenly while running and in, in the moment when his little shoes skid off the ground you can turn that movement into an acrobatic side somersault. These skills and more which the player would be able to make Mario do from the offset and were only locked behind the player's knowledge of their workings and their ability to pull them off are incredibly malleable. They open a way for self-expression through gameplay and they are married to the level design flawlessly. You see, the level design in Mario 64 is mere suggestion. Oh look, we're on Cool Cool Mountain and there's a skinny bridge with a couple of enemy snowmen bouncing up and down along it. The instinct is for the player to take it slow across the bridge and scoot underneath the snowmen as they bounce over Mario. A seasoned Mario 64 player will approach the bridge at the end of a triple jump and bound over all the snowmen and the bridge all at once. An expert player won't even use the bridge. They'll dive Mario into the great chasm underneath but will know the exact actions to take to have Mario still bounce and spring to safety in some mental way. 
nothing emphasizes the timelessness of 64's controls than the life it has taken on in modern gaming culture. Speedrunners have demolished this game and remade it in their image, glitching the hell out of it, yeah, phasing Mario through walls and entire floors of Peach's Castle and whatever, but also just through sheer skill, pulling off amazing acrobatics through the game's diverse 3D worlds that Nintendo surely did not even consider in its design. The game has taken on a life of its own, evolved beyond its creator's intentions. But the reason it was able to do this is because of that wonderful, malleable, diverse control scheme that they came up with in the first place. And to reiterate, this was one of the first 3D games. That Nintendo pulled this off in 1996 remains, for my money anyway, one of the all-time greatest pieces of video game design and innovation of all time. But how is it today? How is it for new players? Rough, I'd imagine. Despite my sycophantic ranting, it's still a game from 1996. New players might be shocked by its sticky, stubborn camera, easily its most aged aspect. They might balk at Mario's slippiness, his want, if you will, to trip over even the tiniest elevations in the level's geography. I'm a big enough man to admit that polish, quote-unquote, has come a long way, and Nintendo's stalwart 1996 effort is still one that reeks of, well, 1996. But I'd also argue that Mario 64 remains a grower that anyone of any age who can push past its antiquity would be treated to a game that's every bit as stunning and amazing as it was in the far-flung days of the Nintendo 64. It's the most important Mario game in my life, but I resisted putting it number one. Through this replay, I've opened my heart to the idea that although 64 was revolutionary, maybe some of the improvements that its descendants had are worth considering. As such. Number three. In March 2017, the Nintendo Switch came out, and then in November 2017, Super Mario Odyssey came out. And for but a brief moment in this modern hellscape we all live in, all was good. I said earlier that for a long time, Super Mario Sunshine was the last bastion in the 3D exploratory side of Mario, exuding that wanderlust-inducing kind of feeling that Mario 64 pioneered. And it was true. The Mario Galaxy games, you haven't talked about them yet, hmm... Uh, 3D Land, 3D World, although those games unleashed you into the third dimension as well, they didn't quite scratch that same itch that 64 and Sunshine did. And then Odyssey came out and immediately relieved 15 years worth of blue balls. Ooh. When I talked about Sunshine, I complimented its sense of place, how wonderfully, how wonderfully livable Isle Delfino was in a sort of cartoon way. Well, Odyssey pulls it off like 10 times. It's the perfect marriage in a sense. The level variety of, say, Mario 64, ticking off the greatest hits of water level, snow level, forest level, whilst realising them with an indelible sense of place. The showstopper level here is New Donk City, a New York stand-in that has Mario coexisting with bizarrely, atomically correct 50s businessmen and women as he scales skyscrapers and careens from building to building. And it features a festival bit that feels like a celebration of everything Mario, where the wonderfully cheesy Jump Up Superstar is played, which is both a fantastic song and also the most embarrassing thing I've ever played at a house party. But pretty much every world here is great, and even when it's building off of a platform game trope, it finds a unique hook to make it stand out, whilst instilling it in that aforementioned sense of place. I love New Donk City, but my personal favourite is Steam Gardens, a forest world that doubles as an artificial biome with robots and a secret dark side of the forest with a dinosaur in it for some reason. And the whole thing is tied together with a choice of musical score that both feels very un-Mario and so very not the choice most games would go for with a forest-type level world thing. 
It's pretty much surfer rock and it's my absolute favourite track in the whole game. Gameplay wise, Cappy is the hook here. He's a sentient cap that Mario wears and his many uses are hooked into the very lifeblood of the game like IV drips. I shouldn't throw shit back but honestly, to me, Cappy is a better version of Flood from Sunshine. A little sidekick character that imbues Mario with new skills that dominates the gameplay but done much better here. For me anyway. It's one of those pieces of game design that I love to see. It's something that I would very much associate with Nintendo but is not unique to them. It's when a developer comes up with a mechanic that seeds out and informs almost every aspect of a game. How you interact with this world, how you move about, is constantly bolstered by Cappy. Mario's 3D movement and moveset, which Nintendo has slowly sculpted away at over the years, is given even more freedom and potential for experimentation just by Mario's ability to hurl Cappy forward. He can then bound off of Cappy or simply use the act of throwing to lead into another jump. Like Mario's moveset is expanded in ways that the game doesn't even explain to you and it truly feels like the sky's the limit sometimes. There's no better feeling in this game than when you manage to use Mario's range of jumps and movements to get to some nigh unreachable looking ledge or something. Some place that feels out of the game's bounds, only to discover that Nintendo have left some coins there for you to collect. That's them flexing. That's them saying, you didn't think we thought of this, did you? Nah, we know we've created one of the most malleable control schemes ever. Mario 64 was 21 years ago, welcome to the future, bitch. Of course, Cappy can also capture enemies and the genius of this mechanic makes my, my heart hurt. Mario's ability to forcibly inhabit the bodies of his enemies is the other central key to the traversal of Mario Odyssey and there are some enemies whose playstyle and skills could fill entire games but Mario Odyssey is so breathlessly excited to show you the next thing it just moves on. I did some cursory research before doing this list to see what the vibe of the Mario fanbase is like. Not much but a little. And I was a little shocked to find that a vocal crowd have turned against Odyssey somewhat. Maybe it's the combat recency bias, although this thing is nearly six years old now, I don't know. But I wholeheartedly disagree. Mario Odyssey is wonderful. It's simply one of the most polished, most expertly designed video games I've ever had the pleasure of playing. Perhaps some of the umbrage comes from the main collectibles in this game, the moons, from the fact that there are maybe too many of them. And I can gel with that a little bit. The stars in 64, the shines in sunshine are far less numerous and therefore every challenge or a bit of platforming or whatever feels more substantial, more important. There are moons and odyssey all over the place. The game is almost desperate for you to be achieving something at all times. And I think that ties into Odyssey's perfect duality as a game that can be played in 30 minute chunks here and there and those 30 minute chunks will feel meaningful and as a game that has so much worthy content and such good pacing that you can accidentally lose 6 hours to it. If I stood back and looked at it, in fact, I would say that it might mirror the Switch itself, good for taking handheld on a plane journey maybe, and good for sinking into your living room with. I don't think it's a coincidence that both of Nintendo's first big year one Switch games, the Breath of the Wild and this, can offer a litany of cool small moments as well as their big ones. I'll admit it might make Odyssey less fun to 100%, but for me personally, over the last six years, I've struck a similar relationship with this game that I have with Sunshine. I'm not getting everything in it. I like to pass through to see the sights. Now, admittedly, I like to spend more time in it than, in, than I do in Sunshine, and I actually feel like the true soul of this game burns brighter after the main quest is done. I love the main quest, a mad scramble chasing Bowser through the worlds to stop a wedding. That's great. But when it's done, it feels like it's just time to chill and explore, see what moons you can turn up, and that's Mario Odyssey to me. Mario Sunshine is a game where Mario literally goes on a vacation, but consider 
Odyssey's big vacation vibes. How each world is made to have different locals with kind of cultures written shorthand for them. How your map screen doubles as a fold-out tourist pamphlet, complete with local facts and tips on where to go. How the stores where you buy Mario's many new costumes are kitschy and sterile and have shit music piping in. And what do they sell other than costumes? Souvenirs and stickers that serve no gameplay function. Tat. They sell tat. These shops are shit tourist traps. This is the Mario Vacation game. In fact, Odyssey is too epic a title for it. In order to capture its true spirit, its true soul, it should have been named something like Super Mario Hollybobs. Super Mario off the Grand Canaria for the May long weekend. Super Mario Big Toblerone. Number two and number one. I hope it doesn't take the wind out of this somewhat, but I'm going to do the final two games together. I considered splitting these games up for this list, but nah. Now, I'm old, so I don't have childhood memories of the Wii. I have good memories, great memories, but not memories of my favourite era of Nintendo by a long shot. A lot of stuff came out in that era that appealed to the general masses, and that's great, I won't poo-poo that. But as a lifelong Nintendo fan at that point, the wait in between quote-unquote proper flagship Nintendo games felt longer. I started to feel ignored in favour of whoever the fuck Wii Music was for. I can complain, but the whole thing is softened by the fact that Nintendo low-key released the two best Mario games ever in that period. Two of their greatest games ever. Easily. Everything I've complimented about Mario games is represented in Super Mario Galaxy and Super Mario Galaxy 2. The grand idea in the first Galaxy game was to untether Mario from God's green earth, which is fitting because Mario has long turned his back on the concept of any god but himself. Mario levels are usually, often enough, driven by mechanics first. What will the player be doing? Uh, then vibes can be surgically added after all that. Sunshine is the exception, etc, etc. There are exceptions. But Mario games are conduits of pure creativity. Wonderful marriages of ideas and mechanics and gameplay designed to be, above all else, fun. And with the Galaxy games, Nintendo created for themselves their greatest playsets ever. Now the likes of gravity, of what is up and what is down, could be twisted and played with in order to just design. Once that central thesis was written stone, that gravity, or a lack thereof, would be a central factor, and that Mario would be able to move in all dimensions around 3D planetoid-like worlds, scamper up walls and ceilings and soar through space like Superman or, or Nuclear Man, all bets were off. All that was left to do was for a team of designers to, like, design. The frameworks of Mario as a franchise has always been kind to the creative spirit, but never more so than here. More so than any other Mario game, the Galaxy games just feel like idea, idea, idea. Mario controls wonderfully, if a bit tighter than previous 3D Mario games, the level design is wonderful, and therefore you the player just have to sit back and take it all in. Is there a better example of video games most pure mandate to just entertain, to just genuinely make you smile? Mario is the best video game character to control, and here is the best example of every other element coming together to inform that fact. The wacky level design and the music. Everything adds on top of the joy and multiplies it. Even just use as a small example. After an opening tutorial, you enter the first level proper, the Good Egg Galaxy. Mario soars in through the stars. There's no music, it's just... And then he lands.
that moment may just be an encapsulation of what I'm trying to get at here. It all comes together in this one. All the lessons Nintendo have learned and written in regards to making these games, and all their central philosophies on the intrinsic joys that should be garnered from them. But which one do I prefer? Well, Galaxy 1 has this weirdly cinematic opening that kicks things off. Uh, it's awesome, it's cool. And it has a central hub world that facilitates the rest of this game. Uh, the Comet Observatory, much like Peach's Castle and Delfino Plaza before it. And the observatory may not be my favourite Mario hub ever, but god is it lovely. The central vibe, so to speak, of most of Mario Galaxy's levels is that of rip-roaring adventure and cosmic wonder, and the game's hub offsets that high energy by exuding gentleness and cosiness. You can go to a room where Rosalina, Galaxy's big new character, is reading a storybook to her Luma children, and how apt because hanging out in the Comet Observatory is the gaming equivalent of the lovely, sleepy safeness of having a story read to you as a child. 2 foregoes all this. With 2, the bricks and mortar were all in place, the engine, the main mechanics. So the designers, free from the hardest parts of design, were free to just design more. Mario Galaxy 2, even in comparison to its predecessor, is just machine gun splatter of ideas. Like... Like, one is breathless too, but you can catch yourself realising that it falls back on some ideas a bit. Like, only a little bit. On this playthrough, for example, I noticed just how many times the game wanted me to have a bullet bill follow me so I could lead it into blowing up something or whatever. And that seemed so very against, like, my idea of Galaxy 1 that it would repeat a mechanic so much. So I tried to notice how many times 2 repeated that mechanic, and just once. And you only brought it back once. 2 just doesn't slow down. Old mechanics are brought back and improved from the first game, and around that there is just a multitude of new ideas and super creative level design. It doesn't deign to be slowed down by sleepy hub worlds. I can see the pros to both approaches, and I love both games, but hopefully this isn't anticlimactic or anything, but... One was out the gate first. One was the bedrock, and although level to level I may prefer to, I still have to give it to one. It stands as the more creative game simply because the devs built it from nothing, thus making it one of the most creative games ever made, thus making it my number one pick for the greatest Mario game ever, with Mario Galaxy 2 coming in at number two. So that's it. I hope you enjoyed this journey through the many canals and orifices of Mario. For every game I talked about, there could have been about 20 things I could have added. But I hope I both painted a picture of my love of the Mario franchise, and, and one of your love too, maybe one that can make you reflect and appreciate your own love of the franchise. Because this franchise is so much bigger than just one guy talking about it on the internet. But it remains, to me, a golden light at the centre of the entire gaming industry. One that keeps reminding me of how the simple joys of gaming often equate to the best experiences. I loved talking about Mario on this episode of Hey Look Listen. I hope you enjoyed listening. Thank you very much.